Hello, everybody. Okay. Uh, I, I don't know what the baskets are for, but Lindsay's going to tell me. People Resource Center. Oh, great organization. If you haven't had a chance to ever check out People Resource Center, you should. Uh, they got a lot of great resources from uh, job training to food to um, emergency assistance. So check it out and give lots of money. Just like St. John. Give lots of money to St. John. Okay, um, let's pray. Blessed Lord, since you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, thy patience, that by patience and comfort of your holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, what is today, or what, what are we celebrating today in church? Reformation. Now, I'm not going to get too much of into a stickler, and I have no desire to change this day, but what is the basic premise of today's celebration? That's a theological statement. What's the historical... uh, Yes, the 95 Theses. Martin Luther took these 95 Theses and went on to the door uh, of the, the church and lined them up there. That, of course, was the uh, the uh, Facebook of old. I don't know. I don't, I, actually, I don't even know what it is today. Things are changing too fast for me. So, plus, I'm uh, I'm anti-social media. So, um, anyways, so whatever it was, it was it was the context in which you discuss ideas. And he, he names it. now. Um, I, I see. I don't think today is really a great day to celebrate the Reformation. Um, for a variety of reasons. Historically, it makes no sense. Like I said, I'm not, I'm not going to advocate. I'm not actually saying uh, we should actually like, take to social media and say, today is not really Reformation Day. I would argue that June 25th is Reformation Day. But, um, and I'll explain why in a little bit. But, uh, so the basic premise of the 95 Theses is that uh, you know, there's a, like a, a sense that Martin Luther was Lutheran, and he wasn't even Lutheran when he posted the 95 Theses, which is ironic because we consider this as a day of remembering our Lutheranism. Does anyone, does anyone have any idea what year? So, oh, so uh, what year was uh, the 95 Theses posted? 1517. Of course, next year is the 500th year, right? Okay. Um, kind of uh, something you learn in seminary or if you're a nerd like me, you learn kind of just by reading. What year was it when Luther discovered the gospel? And by, by asking this, it's not 1517. Well, see, this is, oh, 1521, uh, that's an interesting argument. Uh, oftentimes, it's 1518 is when Luther discovered the gospel. So, kind of historically speaking, it's kind of funny that we'd celebrate us being Lutheran on a day when Luther wasn't even Lutheran. So, I mean, I think that's a little bit ironic. Um, okay, uh, even in 1517 or even 1518, 1520, 21, those who we would consider Lutherans, were they in fact Lutherans? Even if they were theologically, were they Lutherans? No, because there was no such thing as a Lutheran church. 
Uh, which, again, another irony of ironies, although you could interpret it as being, hey, this is a sign of the one Catholic church. Luther is trying to, which, again, then would complicate the way we celebrate it. Um, now, so when, when were Lutherans, as Lutherans are, actually, you know, when did they come about? It's arguable, so I'll take a variety of answers. And I'm really not set on, on one date, but there is one. If you want to put a point on it, yeah, somebody said it over here on my right side. The uh, presentation of the Augsburg Confession, which of course would be on June 25th. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe next time Bishop Litkin from Siberia comes, he, they, today is not a big day in their church body. It's not a huge day that they don't celebrate very much. They acknowledge it because it's in the it's in the hymnals, but their their big day of being Lutheran is June 25th. It's the day that the Augsburg Confession. Now, Pastor, what in the world is the Augsburg Confession? Augsburg Confession was a a, a, a statement of faith that was presented to uh, the Emperor Charles and the cohorts of the Roman Catholic Church in defense of what we would now call Lutherans' belief and the one holy Christian and apostolic church. So what's funny, this is another irony of Reformation Day that I find. Again, I, I, we're going to always celebrate Reformation Day, and we're going to participate in the festivities next year, don't get me wrong, but I am always thinking about Because I never rest. I always think you should always ask why you do what you do. You know, even to the point of, like, why do you put your right leg in first or your left leg first into your pants. I mean, I, I just always think about this. I really do. Because sometimes I say to myself, I'm not going to put my right leg in first. I'm going to put my left leg in first. Why? Because. Just because. I can't, you know, okay. So, when we celebrate the Reformation Day, we should probably ask ourselves why and, and what, what does it mean? So, um, who was, what was I talking about before this? Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay, so the Augsburg Confession itself, yes, was a document not to protest, as in Protestant, but was an, actually an effort to bring together. It was an ecumenical document. So, again, irony of ironies, many people, when they celebrate Reformation Day, it's in fact a, a, a day of separation, when the thing that makes Lutherans as Lutherans is, in fact, an attempt to <laughs> communion, not separation. Um, anyways, okay, so like I said, uh, you know, I'm sure, I, I'll be interested to see what Pastor Bruce says. This might be not, this might not be posted on the internet, but, <laughs> but uh, I, I think it's something very important for us to really consider uh, as Lutherans, because we as Lutherans, in kind of our founding kind of documents, the thing that makes this confession of faith, it is originally a confession of unity and not separation. And, in fact, not, not to get too nerdy, uh, there, there's a variety of statements within the Augsburg Confession, and there's two sections. One that are, like, givens, meaning, hey, these are the ones that we all agree on. There really should be no argument about this. And at the end of those, there's a, there's a very distinct statement that says, all this, as you can tell, does not deviate from the Catholic Church, even the Roman Church. 
And then the, the second half is the disputed parts that um, say, hey, we, you know, there's some problems with it. Anyways, so I think I think that's something for us to remember, and as we celebrate Reformation, uh, it, many of you know that I, I wasn't born Lutheran. I, I became Lutheran by choice, um, and you know this is part of my reason why I became Lutheran is I became Lutheran because of these founding documents. Uh, you, you know. Uh, Growing up in a different denomination and, and wondering why I believe what I believe, where's the history of what you know the things I do believe, where's this all come from? Uh, investigating that very thoroughly, I came along this Augsburg Confession, and I actually believed what it said, meaning that this was a document that was to bring people together, not to separate people. And so I thought to myself, hey, that sounds like something I could be a part of. And then I and then I met a lot of Lutherans. And uh, I said to myself, oh, hey, you guys, uh, that's, uh, you don't have the same ideas as I do. I thought, I thought this was uh, an attempt to reconcile, not, not to uh, separate. But um, uh, it, needless to say, that's not a slam on Lutherans. That's any Christian denomination, holy smokes. Um, but anyways, I, I, uh, so Reformation Day is an important day because it did get the discussion started amongst the church as a whole. So that's the reason why it should be celebrated. I mean, it is something where Martin Luther is just, again, you think about it, Martin Luther, when he posted that 95 Theses, he he thought, hey, I thought we were just going to talk about this. And of course, there wasn't a lot of discussion over the course of the next, uh, you know, 50 years in his life. Well, he he didn't live that long. But I mean, until 1580, um, you know, so it's sometimes ironic how things turn out when you just say, hey, can't we just talk about this? And then, and then you find out you touched a nerve, and maybe that's how you feel about Reformation Day and Pastor Nelson. Um, that's okay, though. I, I think it's important. All right, that's my, that's my two cents about uh, Reformation Day. Uh, you can believe it or not. That's okay. Question? I'm just going to say the pictures online make well, hey, that's interesting. I mean, who knows? Yeah, well, I don't know what that means either. But I think, I think, I think, really, until 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 the church, you know, until the Roman Church says like, "I'm sorry," or even says, uh, you know, Luther's no longer excommunicated. It's it's really kind of just it's not really really serious talk. But okay. All right, well, happy Reformation Day. <laughs> I mean that sincerely. Um, but also know that June 25th, now we do celebrate June 25th here at St. John, but I'd, I actually haven't looked, I didn't look at the calendar before it came in. I don't have my phone. It's a Sunday this year. Oh, so see, this is something you can remind Pastor Nelson then later. Are we going to celebrate the Confession, the Augsburg Confession? The presentation of the Augsburg Confession, sorry. All right. I don't know if I'm going to be gone that weekend, so. <laughs> I'm just teasing. No, no, yeah, we will. I mean, hopefully we should. I mean, um, as you can tell, this is something that Pastor Nelson has really kind of thought about more than maybe Pastor. Well, Pastor Music's definitely thought about it, but he's kind of like, you know, what's the big deal? To which I say, 
It is a big deal. Okay. All right, so last week, you know, I introduced this idea of the theology of the body. I, I think I, I probably... Have you ever drank out of a fire hose? And I think maybe a little bit of last week was like that, so maybe we should probably slow down a little bit. And it, it will come back to the, the basic premise of the explanation of the first article of the Creed, where um, Luther, Luther says, I believe that God has made me and all creatures. He lists all the bodily senses. Then he talks about the rest of creation. And then the part that we will kind of uh, spend a little bit more time on today is the, uh, uh, he does this out of any kind of merit on myself. And then I have a duty in response to that. So, um, okay. So this is really like confirmation stuff. But like I said last week, maybe we haven't really thought about it. So, so the basic premise of the theology of the body is to think about your body theologically. I mean, we think about a lot of things theologically. We think about giving your money theologically, your, your use of your money theologically. We think about, um, you know, the death penalty theologically, the birthing theologically. There's a lot of things that we think about theologically, um, but the body uh, as a theological uh, kind of thing to think about has. For most of Christian history, it was just a given. This is a presumption. This is not something we necessarily need to talk about too much because it is what it is and everyone knows it. Well, in, within the 20th century, though, that has radically changed. Um, that the presumptions of what we uh, believe about our body and know about our body cannot be assumed anymore. So, the Pope, John Paul II, gave these Wednesday night evening evening lectures to talk about what he thought was the theology of the body. I have no, just like Reformation Day, I always ask why we believe what we believe. So in reading John Paul's statement about the theology of the body, I always ask why he says what he says. And there will be points of disagreement. So I'm not necessarily, I, I use the word, phrase theology of the body as just a, like a simple statement, thinking about the body theologically. I could have said that, but I felt like that was more of a mouthful to say than theology of the body. But the one thing, though, is that John Paul II does say that's very helpful for us is the theology of the body is something that walks in the front door of theology. If you believe in Jesus, then it is just kind of our responsibility to think about the body theologically. And the Gospel of John is, I think, the easiest place to explore that. So if you look on your little handout there, there's a, a kind of a slew of Bible references just from the Gospel of John. Now, I, I didn't imp- include in this, but I would like to think about this kind of as a group here, and that goes to 2 Corinthians uh, um, chapter 5, where Paul says, uh, do you not know that your body is a temple, that you've been bought with a price? That's, that's kind of a ramification of the theology of the body in a biblical statement. But I didn't include it at the end of the the handout, and frankly, I think I just deleted it when I shouldn't have. So, we need to talk about that before we leave. All right. So, the Gospel of John. Uh, John starts with this great kind of, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word... Now, you have Bibles on your table. Feel free to open those. You don't have to. Um, But I'm going to kind of talk fast and loose with the Bible... Um, I won't necessarily always read the, the text. But um, John starts out with this great prologue of the Word becoming flesh. 
And the word we find out, of course, is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. So, um, the word becoming flesh then sets the stage for thinking of the body theologically. If God became a body, or is a body, uh, then that means something for us who have bodies, who are body. Uh, I mean, that seems like a simple statement. We do it every Christmas. We celebrate Jesus becoming a little baby. But if anybody has ever held a little baby, you know this is a very profound moment. I mean, a newborn baby, your world's turned upside down. So think about holding God in the flesh. The universe is turned upside down. So uh, the fact that uh, God has has a body is something very important for us. Now, this, this, this becomes very uh, accentuated. At the, so, the Gospel of John, there's a lot of things that are laid out in the beginning of the book that get kind of flushed out later in the book of John. So, John, in chapter 2, talks about the destruction of the temple. Hey, I'm going to tear down this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Now, everybody, of course, is thinking about the building. It's not... It's only us, the reader, who's kind of given in on this little note. Hey, Jesus actually is talking about the temple of his body. So, the body is part of salvation, which again, we kind of just think about this nonchalantly. That's true, okay. But, it then directly relates to your salvation with your body, which then kind of rubs up against some of the things we had talked about, and which we'll kind of review real quick, about Descartes. And the idea of, I think, therefore, I am, and kind of the new, like this old heresy, Manichaeism. All right, then, of course, then, the body of, of Christ that Christ is talking about, this body that's going to be destroyed and then resurrected, raised again, um, is the same body, then, which people will participate in by consuming it. And that's in John chapter 6, where Jesus says, hey, the, the, you're going you're gonna to eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood. Of course, people are shocked and offended by this. How can, how can this man say these things? But of course now, Jesus is helping them understand the body. When God is enfleshed in the body, and then gives that divine body to, to us, or to the church, our bodies then participate in this life. Uh, the way I usually tell the confirmation or the early Lord's Supper class is, you are what you eat, right? So when you consume Jesus' divine body, human, human body that is God's body, then you participate in the life of God. You, you become... You, be, you uh, start living that life. Now, of course, that life is started in holy baptism. And I didn't, I didn't, we didn't mention this too, but if you really want to spend a little time, read the large catechism. Small, the, the, yeah, the small catechism? Then you have a large catechism. The large catechism, Martin Luther, in the discussion of holy baptism, the body plays a primary role. The body, well, think about this. A little infant. The infant receives God's word. The soul receives this word. Of course, it comes through hearing. But in holy baptism, 
what kind of word is this? Of course, anybody who knows, it's a wordy word, right? It's a watery word, yeah. Wordy water, right? This water is a wordy water. That word, though, is received in the flesh, on the body. The soul receives it. So, this is, uh, so, uh, so as we talk about the sacrament, the, the, the sacrament of the altar, in, re, in consuming Christ's body, that then affects our bodily life, this is, a process, this is something that's already started, even in holy baptism, as our bodies receive the very word of God in the wordy water. Okay, so um, again, it, we just can't talk about God without talking about our bodies. Now, um, oh, well, yeah, then, okay, then you've kind of fleshed this out at the end of Gospel of John, the tending of the body of Jesus. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't include the Gospel of Mark, but I would make the argument, within the Gospel of Mark, Joseph of Arimathea, there's a confession. Joseph of Arimathea is looking for something. Now, the idea of looking is idea that he's, I mean, he hasn't found it yet. He's looking for something, and he asks for the body of Jesus. He's looking for the kingdom of God. And so the way Mark is, is structured is, I think there's a good argument to say that the kingdom of God is in the body of Jesus. Like he's found what he's looking for. Um, but anyways, so the idea of tending the dead body of Jesus is important. So of course, you could make the argument that this is just old Jewish uh, burial rites. But of course, where would they have gotten those ideas from? The Old Testament, which of course is our, our, our scripture. When you pray the Lord's Prayer and say, Thy kingdom come, is that talk about Jesus? That's right. Jesus is life. So, so the idea of the kingdom of God is the reign of God. That's another that's a kind of interesting thing about the Greek is that the kingdom is not necessarily specifically this, this uh, as we kind of think about, right, a walled city and, you know, it's it's a way of being like the reigning like so the God the way that God reigns is also called the kingdom of God yeah but um which I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail because if Joseph Arimathea is looking for the kingdom of God and he finds it in the body of Christ then the way that God reigns is primarily through through death which of course then drives us back to the cross which sounds very very Christian right. Right, we should always look at the cross to find the kingdom of God. Okay. Um, oh, then okay. Then the resurrection. This goes back to Richard's questions last week. That we, I, yeah, I shouldn't be so tied to the outline. So Richard talked, asked about the, you know, is our bodily when our bodies are resurrected, what is it going to look like? What's what? What are things like in between? Uh, of course, Scripture doesn't really talk about the time between, but. In the confession of Jesus' body in the resurrection, we kind of know a couple things. First of all, when the disciples see Jesus, what do they mistake him for? Ghost. Which, of course, is disembodied. All right. But Jesus says, hey, I mean, this is is actually in Luke. John has a very specific way of kind of revealing his body, but John, uh, Jesus says what? What does he say to him? Yeah, come and touch me. Because the ghost doesn't have a body. So the body is a source of revelation. 
you will only know if you are resurrected when you when you touch. I would say when you give Jesus a hug. That's the way I would say. So think about heaven and Jesus coming and give you a big hug. Now you know. That's it. Um, but in John, of course, they, miss, they, they, uh, they see Jesus, but do they know who he is? No. Well, actually, let's, I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself. Who's the number one guy who can't understand who Jesus is in the resurrection according to John? Thomas. Even before that, though, Jesus, what does Jesus do? So Thomas is gone, right, Easter those who are present, Jesus shows up. And what does he show? Well, I give it away already, right? He shows his wounds. But the fact that he has to show something. He doesn't just say, hey, how's it going, guys? He actually has to, they have to, inter, they have to, they have to communicate with his body. And then they know that this is who he is. Of course, now it becomes an extreme example with Thomas. Because what does Thomas say? Unless I can, Unless I can touch him, right? And, of course, the Caravaggio painting, I mean, that's a little too nerdy, I'm sorry. Uh, so there's a, guy, a, Reformation, a Renaissance painter named uh, Michelangelo Caravaggio. It's not the Michelangelo that everyone thinks of, but, or the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. So um, it's, it's another Caravaggio, so they usually name him as Caravaggio. He has a great painting of Thomas and and does anyone know it? What so uh, kind of explain the interaction between Thomas? And I should have thought of this uh, by showing it. Um, you look it up. Google it later. Okay, Michael. What? How does he? Uh, what is Jesus doing to Thomas? He's shoving How? Putting his uh, hand in it. He's he's put, yeah. But except I don't think his hand is actually touching because that's not. Well, this is a point of debate, so this is good. <laughs> Thomas says, unless I touch his wounds, right, or put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Most people say that's a sign of disbelief. I, I, I actually argue the opposite. I say he's actually doing precisely what he should be doing. The doubting Thomas thing is, a, again, like my Reformation views, uh, I think are debatable. And I think a lot of us, because you've got to ask why you believe what you believe, right? So I think Donnie Thomas is not doubting at all. He is actually saying, he's, he's asking the why question. He, he wants more, not less. So if you, want, if you want to say, Thomas is actually saying, unless I get the full Jesus, it's not good enough. Unless I get the Jesus who has a body, it's not really the same Jesus that I spent the last three years with and loved and cherished and followed to his death. So I think Thomas is a great, uh, I think it's a, it's a confession of faith. So I think Caravaggio's painting is really cool. Jesus is actually making his hand go inside him. So, which I've argued is Thomas is actually reaching into the, for the heart of Jesus. It's not until you touch the heart of Jesus that you experience the resurrection. And how do you do that? Through his side. I know that sounds pretty gross. That sounds like... Uh, yeah, so, so, okay, so how does that happen, of course, is that Christ, through his word, 
creates faith in Thomas, and these are the connection. In fact, uh, Dave Crawford just said that right now, and which we will not get to today, but at some other time, this would be my source of contention with John Paul II's Theology of the Body, is that how we define a human as a Lutheran is very different than Roman Catholics. A human, or anthropology as Lutherans, is precisely one justified by faith. We actually only become who we fully are when we are justified by faith. There's no substance of humanity apart from God's intervention. So the same with Thomas. Thomas does not experience this fullness of who Christ is without the faith that's been given to him by Jesus. And of course, how has that faith been given? When he shows up in the midst of them. So these are all organically connected. They're distinct. We can make distinctions, but they're not separated. Yeah, they, that's good. Thank you, Dave, for bringing that up. Because that's something that's very important for us. Um, because if Jesus showed up amongst pagans, would they recognize him? I, I, I'm talking theologically and kind of uh, abstractly. Because very well, one of those pagans could have heard the word of God at some time preach, and when Jesus shows up, it clicks in their belief. Okay. But I'm talking about someone, this scenario where pagans are, okay, that sounds like a derogatory term, non-believers. When, uh, if Jesus showed up amongst non-believers, I mean, just showed up, didn't talk or anything, just, hey, how you doing? I mean, didn't even say that. Would they recognize him? No, because they don't have faith which is very similar to a resurrection appearance in the Gospel of Luke. Cleopas and this other disciple, they're walking along, and Jesus shows up. But do they recognize him? No. That's right. When, when, when Christ gives them, opens up their minds to scriptures and in the breaking of the bread. So, um, yeah. Again, these are distinctions. We don't want to separate them. Because there's no point in telling that story in Luke chapter 24 if he's separated. I mean, think about it, right? Jesus shows up, walks along, and then goes away. It's, I mean, why would, you t- why would you tell that story? That doesn't make any sense. But if you have Jesus walking along, and then their hearts burning, and their, uh, their, their, uh, uh, their bodies or their whole, whole self, their psyches, um, opening up to his presence, you can tell that story. There's a question back here. Yeah. I never thought of that way, but that's actually brilliant because the wound of the spear, the whole point was that the spear would go into the rib. That's right. Hit the heart, and that's what kill him. That's right. That's when the water pours out, but that's brilliant. So, so the so the spear, not spend too much time on this, is a spear of death, right? Same motion. Oh, that's all. That's you know. That's in the Gospel of John, the water and the blood. The same motion of Thomas's hand goes in now, not to kill it, but to 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 feel life. I mean, it's the opposite way. It's a life-giving aspect of things. Which again, it go, okay. So uh, not getting on a tangent now, but Reformation Day. Love, I I love being a Lutheran. I I love it. Um. But there's something also in other Christian denominations that I love too. And one of them is the sacred heart of Jesus. That's usually talked about in Roman Catholicism. I think that's something that for us, they don't mean the, just the heart. They, the heart is representative of his love. And I always think 
I mean, so when Jesus showed, there's images of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Some are a little kitschy. That's yeah, it's not great aesthetically speaking, but his 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 um his love is being poured out through the side. I think that's a great image because we, I mean, when Thomas is touching his, I mean, that is that's what we want. We I want to be there. I know it sounds gross, but at the same time, the crucifixion's gross. I mean, it, it is, so that's the part where we want to be. Stephen, what was your question or comment? Uh, just in your discussion about the work of the man, the connection between you know, them, you can't recognize Jesus unless you have faith. Right. They did not recognize Jesus until Christ opened their eyes. That's right. Christ gave them faith, so we do not choose to have faith. We are given it's pure gift. That's right. And that's another thing, too, about the theology of the body. And to go back to the small catechism, I haven't mentioned it much, but God made me. That statement is a gift statement. And indirectly, then, God continues to... Again, I didn't write the full thing this week, but if you think about the small catechism, Luther's explanation, God made me, that sounds like past tense, but Luther also says, and he continues to daily richly provide. So there's this notion that our identity as a receiver is just, that's, that's, that's who we are as people, which goes to then the fact that we have no identity, we have no substance or ourselves or not ourselves without God, this relationship to God. Which is a very kind of unique Christian theological understanding of, of being human, which will rub up against a lot of kind of secular anthropologies. But at the same time, we're Christians, so it, that should be normal. We should be able to work that out. Michael. You had set up the, the scenario of Jesus appearing to unbelievers, and since we're talking about the creed, that made me think about the bodily descent into hell. Sure. So if you're going to get there, you can just pass. No, no, that's, uh, no I, won't, I won't have enough time for all this stuff. So, what's your question then exactly? Just could you talk to me about All right, so uh, Apostles' Creed, uh, Christ descends into hell. What does that mean? Well, this is a good question. This is, again, another kind of question that Scripture doesn't necessarily completely answer, except for we know that Christ goes into hell. What exactly happens in there? If you do read the the questions at the end of your small catechism, you'll go a list of answers. Um, One is Christ goes down to hell to show his victory, to kind of defeat the devil. After he heals all the people who have gone to him. Well, yeah, I wouldn't say it that way. But um, there's another interpretation based on on 1 Peter chapter 3, where Christ goes down to Gehenna, is the word in the Greek. Oftentimes that will be translated as Hades even in English Bibles, which I think is not, I I don't think that's really helpful as a translation, because when we read Hades, what do we think of? Well, or Hercules, or, or you know, some sort of Greek mythology. Or well, at least I, I think about the River Styx. Come say way. Um, so what does that mean? Uh, yeah, hell. Things of hell. But of course, when he goes there, he sets he sets prisoners free. But now, what are the prisoners are? And that's where the Bible says it's the time before Noah. So there's a, there's a variety of complexities to this text. Um, so I, I would say, uh, does he go to hell bodily? Yes, I mean, he goes to hell as who he is. And what does he do down there? 
It's good, whatever he does. <laughs> but I, w I would probably argue that he goes to preach, and then his preaching results in faith. Um, that doesn't mean everyone gets out. You know, hell is only locked from the inside. So, you think about what that means. Don, and then Leanne. With this discussion, I'm suddenly thinking of Luther's saying, I cannot find my own reason or expression for That's the second article. That's exactly right. So, our character as people um, is really helpful. So, there's nothing in us that defines ourselves. If we believe our life is a gift, then our identity is a gift. And this is where, this is really important for us. Because if we define ourselves apart from God, then that's a form of works righteousness. Think about that for a second, okay? Whatever that means, right? Which means, if that means we're defining ourselves apart from God. There's no humanity without God informing it. And how does he inform it? is not just by description or definition, but by speaking. As in Genesis chapter 1, God spoke and it happened. Or any of the resurrection accounts in the Gospels. Little girl, I say to you, arise. And the boy, the widow, son and name, get up. He gets up. So, um... Okay, so Don brings up the second article. We're not here to talk about the second article. But you notice the first article and the second article are connected in this giftedness of God speaking. Leanne. Well, I have heard before in another church that Jesus takes the sin of the world because he had to be perfect to be God. That's right. Yep, in his body. Yep. That's right. That, that's yeah. Who, who who delivers it? Who delivers? Who delivers the hellness of hell? Well, let's see. This is where we get into the complexity here, man. If we say Jesus, then oh man, are we? Gonna, does Jesus? You know, how does that work? Which uh, I think it's good for you to think about because part of who we are is original. Uh, not part of who we are, but in the discussion of what, how we understand man, that is human, to be, to be itself, the discussion of original sin needs to come in. And that is outside the scope of what we're talking about. But it's directly related. <laughs> because if Jesus delivers... Well, okay. There's a lot of interesting little discussions about the body that can go all different places. Um, is there another hand up? Okay. All right, so, uh, oh, so why is this important? Oh yeah, resurrected bodies eat. Jesus eats in the okay. Um, oh yeah, so there's no discussion about who God is without discussing the body. Luther, Martin Luther at the Marburg Quality, this this uh, debate between a guy named Zwingli and Luther about what the Lord's Supper means. Luther just it really just drives it home. He's like, I have no other God than the incarnate one. In order to desire another one. So, for Luther. You, this idea of the body being part of the revelation or the means of grace is just fundamental to who God is. You can't think about God without, you know, the fleshiness of it all. Um, 
Yeah, so, uh, okay, great. That, that's, there's a lot of interesting things to say about that. Okay, um, I think, I think we're just, let's just turn to the back. If you don't have it, you don't really need it because we don't really, don't really follow it. But um, just, the, uh, just to kind of review, oh, so uh, how is this rub up against uh, kind of modern day? So there, I mentioned this guy, Rene Descartes, French dude from a few hundred years ago, came up with this phrase, I think, therefore I am. So then the thing that makes us or determines our existence is our thought which then is separated from the body, which then makes your body an object and not a subject, to use those kind of English phraseologies. Um, but th- that's, not about the Bibli- that's, not, that's not how the Bible understands. Our, the body and, this, and the soul, or body and the spirit, are together. I am body, I am spirit. I am body, spirit. Or embodied spirit. Um, and that's really important for us because we can't just decide whatever we want to do with the body without having ramifications of who we are, which is kind of an ethical discussion, but that's beside the point. Um, and then uh, it rubs up against, too, about the new Manichaeism, which, of course, we, I, that's the word I use every day, Manichaeism. Um, but if you were to watch uh, Dr. – well, I don't think that's on anymore, but when I was younger, Dr. 90210 – Come on, Sarah, there we go. It's a, it's a show about plastic surgery. Uh, you do, all you got to do is watch some old episodes of Dr. 9210, and you will find a bunch of Manichaeists, people who believe in Manichaeism. Okay. Um, which means that the body is just raw material. It's, what, it's the soul which counts, and the body, I can kind of do whatever I want with it both whether it be kind of in a carnal sense or in a very um, pious sense. Okay. So that, that's something important for us because as we th- think about our bodies, then we'll kind of come up to these presumptions of identity, who we are, and which, of course, that makes complete sense if we, again, like I said last week, if we watch the nightly news, um, Christians do have something to say about this. The uh, Okay, then... Uh, Oh, which then, of course, if God makes us, which as a Christian, that's a basic premise, God made me and all creatures, then this, this idea of being gifted or receiving life as a gift, it's not abstracted from the truth. Truth is part of our relationship to God. So our bodies are answerable to the truth, where today it's kind of the other way around. So I can decide my truth and then fit my body into it. Um, and that goes to the last very part of the small catechism where it says, for all which I owe it to him to think, praise, serve, and obey him. This is most certainly true. So within the definition of the first article of the creed is there's ethical aspects of our body. Unless we know what the body is, then unless we know what the body is, we can't know what to do with it. We can't just decide to do things with it without ramifications of butting up against the truth. You know, hopefully, you know, falling, falling in line with the truth because, of, tr- of course, I think I put that in there, John 8. The truth will set us free. It's not something that will inhibit our life, which at first glance many people think, but in fact sets us free to live the life that God has for us. Okay.
Let's pray. Lord, uh, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.